Uh, take our Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 2. And tonight we're studying the third church of Asia, which is the church at Pergamos. And as I've mentioned, uh, in each time we've talked about the previous two churches, both times I should say, uh, we're talking about literal churches that existed in the time of John. And John is writing, uh, recording the words of Jesus to those seven churches. But they're also messages that are for our churches today. And it shouldn't take too much digging to figure out that churches today have many of the same problems, if not all of the same problems, that we find right here in these two chapters in Revelation. Now, one thing, though, uh, you might call it an advantage or a disadvantage, depending upon uh, the way that you're viewing it, but we don't have the persecution that they had in those days. We can thank the Lord for that, or maybe, maybe ask God to give us more, because we may need some of it. Uh, There have been great periods of persecution throughout the history of the church. And I don't think it's very long before we may very well see it again in America. And churches that are standing true to the Lord right now are already encountering hostility because of their defense of the gospel. But on the other hand, if you happen to go to a church that's a compromising church, then you're really not going to have too much trouble with the world out there. Because uh, churches hold hands many times with the world, and both of them go merrily down that path to destruction. And this is the case that we're reading about with the church at Pergamos. They were a compromising church. And we'll find out that what was going on in their church happens to be going on in a lot of churches today. Let's, let's stand and let's read about them. Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we begin at verse number 12 tonight. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for the reading of your word tonight. And Lord, uh, we may have some things to say that are difficult, and uh, maybe even some people won't like what I have to say tonight, but we're determined to preach your word and to give the truth of it, and we just ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may have a hard time believing what I'm going to say next. I I have really tried, as I was writing these sermons on these seven churches of Asia, not to be too critical. I, I really have tried not to be too negative, but as I read these verses and I read uh, the warnings that Jesus gives to these seven churches, I can't help but notice that there are some things that he says that are negative and some things that are extremely harsh. Some people get upset when, when I mention the beliefs of other churches. 
If I happen to get on Osteen or Warren, uh, people get a little bit antsy about that, and they say, Pastor, you ought to be a little bit nicer than that. Uh, You ought not to put other people down like that. My purpose is not to put people down. My purpose is to point out error, and that is a biblical thing for a pastor to do. Now, if you were to take this letter of Pergamos and you were to just transport it into the current day, and Jesus were actually writing to, uh, I mean, just straight up writing to, to churches that are existing in America today, let me just read to you what it might sound like. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Joel Osteen, who taught Lakewood Church to cast a stumbling block before evangelical Christians to invite the world into the church and never saw a sin he couldn't tolerate or a religion he couldn't compromise with. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Roman Catholics, which thing I also hate. It would be exactly the same thing because that's what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't hold back. He's pointing his finger at people who have departed from the truth, and he tells them that they are compromising with the world. And Jesus did not say, naughty, naughty, you ought not to do that. He said, which thing I hate. When we're talking about the difference between heaven and hell, and what we teach is either going to send people to an eternal destiny in hell or can save their souls to an eternal destiny of heaven, it makes a difference what we teach. It makes a difference what I say. And what we're looking at here is Jesus' tactic for dealing with churches that have sin in the church and are compromisers. Now, there's nothing, I I don't think there's anything that's more holy and righteous that a pastor can do. Uh, Nothing more that as a pastor of Brian Baptist Church that I could do that's more right than to tell you what's wrong and to tell you who's doing the thing that's wrong and what we ought to do about it. Now, tonight's message, I think we're going to see that there are a lot of American churches that could be classified right along with this Pergamos church as compromising churches. Now, let's get into this text and let's see the message from Jesus. I want you to notice first the word of Christ. Number one is the word of Christ. And he starts off, and to the angel, and we know that means the pastor, to the pastor of the church in Pergamos, write. Now, let me very briefly tell you what the... What kind of uh, area that this pastor in in Pergamos, what what the city was like where he pastored. He was in a place that was where people were some of the most educated. There were some of the most intellectual people in the world that were living. Pergamos was a center of great learning. It was a place where they had one of the largest libraries in the ancient world. Over 200,000 volumes were in their library at Pergamos. It was only rivaled by the one that was in Alexandria, Egypt. This was a center of writing. In fact, this is the place where parchment itself was invented. It's a center of writing. So you're talking about people in the city with big IQs. They're intelligent, educated people. It's also a center of world religion. They were pluralistic, like, like America is today. And there were just worship of all different kinds of God. Even emperor worship was, was prevalent in Pergamos. They were a center of mystic cults. And also there were mystical healers, just like we have diabolical faith healers in our country today. But more than that, Jesus has just a very interesting description of their city in verse number 13. He says, you dwell where Satan's seat is. Now, what does he mean by Satan's seat? Well, the word seat there is actually a word thronos, and it's the same word from which we get thrown. And there are many people who believe that 
this place at Pergamos, I mean, this city of Pergamos was actually a worldly throne for Satan and that he directed much of the activity that he did throughout the world right there from the city of Pergamos. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this is true, that it was a place of much satanic activity. There were temples where false worship went on. The whole city could very well have been a throne of operation for Satan. And so it's to the pastor of a church in that kind of city that the word of the Lord came. And it's a place where there was writing. There are many books that are there. But the most important words that these people could read is when they opened up this letter that came from the Lord Jesus Christ and they were reading the words of God. And he starts out by saying, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. This is the first of the letters that does not open up with a promise. Instead, he opens up with a, well, I guess what we would call it, just a thundering introduction. And he opens up without compromise. He's not going to pull any punches here. There are no holds barred, no compromises. He talks, but he's talking to a very compromising church. Now, I don't think that we can really miss the intent of, of the meaning of the words when he says the sharp sword with two, with two edges. And what that is a reference to is the Word of God. And it's also a reference to Jesus Christ because Jesus is called the living word. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, the scripture says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, uh, piercing even to a dividing asunder the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This is a double-edged sword. It accomplishes two purposes. First of all, it's a sword that corrects. This is a sword that divides and separates the people of God from the people of the world. Jesus said that he would divide the sheep from his goats, from the goats. And and what he meant was that his Holy Spirit would come and divide God's chosen people from those who would not believe. So this is a a sword that convicts us of our sinfulness and convicts the, uh, the guilt of the human heart. Hebrews says the word of God is quick and powerful. And that means that it is the word that actually gives life to us. The word quickens us to life. It's the instrument in the hands of God that actually has the power to bring life to us. And so that is so important why we stay in the word of God. That's why we want to teach the Bible. And whenever you decide, anybody here tonight, I don't know, uh, just about everybody's member, uh, member of this church, but when you decide to join a church, you want to make sure that you join a place where the Word of God is not ignored, where it's not changed, where it's not misinterpreted. You need to join a church that's a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And if you don't do that, you'll find out people are not going to be saved because nobody gets saved without the Word. And so when somebody decides that they're going to take the Word of God and they do change that and they twist it and they put their own interpretations upon it, then the life-giving purposes of the Word of God are obscured. You cannot do without the Word of God. God's Word is truth and people aren't saved without the truth. So one side of this sword, it's given to correct the human problem of inherent depravity and that inability that we have to come to God. It's the life-giving Word of God. But on the other hand, there's another side. I mean, one side is for correction, but there's also another side. It's a two-edged sword, and the other side is for condemnation. That side of the sword is a sword of vengeance. Now, I said on one side it has life-giving properties. On the other side, it has soul-condemning properties. On one side, as the Bible teaches, it's the savour of life, and on the other side, it's the savour of death. 
And the one who wields this side of the sword is is a, a terrible thing to behold. There's nothing gentle about him. Now this side is the one that delivers the death blow to all unbelievers. The person who's hit with this side of the sword suffers the eternal condemnation of hell. So the one who holds this sword is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and he comes to judge the church. He's not going to let his name be used falsely. He won't allow false prophets and unbelievers to remain in his church. So that's the word of the Lord that comes to the church at Pergamos. Now, secondly, I want to talk to you about the worldliness of the church because this was truly a worldly church. It's a compromising church. Now, to their credit, that despite all the worldliness that was around them, Jesus did give them a commendation because he said, there there are some of you that are still holding on to the truth. There's some of you that are willing, even in the face of death, you haven't given up your faith. There in verse number 13, he mentions a man by the name of Antipas. We really don't know anything about him except what the Bible says. I mean, we don't have any uh, secular history or anything that's written where we could find this man. But here in the Word of God, he's remembered because he faced death for the cause of Christ. He did not give up his faith. And if ever you were going to be remembered for something, that's what you ought to be remembered for. Be remembered for your faith. The Bible says here that he was a martyr. Now, we, we use the word martyr today to refer to someone who is, uh, give, gives their life in the cause of Christ, and it means that here, but it also means a witness. Martyr means a witness. And so in this place where Satan had his throne, this man was a witness. But I suspect that Antipas was the exception rather than the rule. Now, someone would say, well, if this church had so much compromise and so many things that were going on there, why didn't just Antipas move out of that church? I mean, why did he just go find another church to be a member of? Well, it's not like we have today. There was one church in the city of Pergamos. All Christians were a member of that one church. And then secondly, he, he didn't move out because I think he's the one person in the church that absolutely refused to turn that church over to Satan. He was left standing for the truth. Now, the compromise was creeping in, and he wasn't going to allow it as long as he lived to let that compromise continue. Now, hopefully there were a few others that were standing with him, but it's evident that the tide was turning. The world was coming into the church, and so the Lord says, I'm coming with my two-edged sword. So here you have a church that's drifting. There's a tide of compromise there. And so next, Jesus identifies the doctrines that were prevalent in that church, the very things that cause or, or the danger of sinking that congregation. Now, the overall problem is one of worldliness. But how does that manifest itself? Well, we'll notice that there was a problem in the church of idolatry. In Revelation 2.14, it says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. There are probably two people in the Scripture that I absolutely, above all others, I would not want to be. One of those is Judas Iscariot. I don't think anybody here would want to be Judas Iscariot. But the other person in the Bible I would not want to believe or be, it's this man Balaam. I wouldn't want to be him. He's mentioned 60 times in the Scriptures, and he always shows up under the worst of circumstances. He's a prophet, and he's never cast in a good light in the Scripture. I'm going to get to the story about him in the Old Testament in just a minute. But in the New Testament, there are three places that speak of Balaam. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, he's the prophet who loved the ways of unrighteousness. 
In the book of Jude, he's the greedy prophet. And right here in Revelation, he's given the single-handed recognition as the one who caused Israel to stumble. That's a pretty awesome track record. It's not a good awesome either. I mean, that's a bad thing. This, this guy was a bad guy. Well, we find Balaam's story in the Old Testament. Uh, it's in the book of Numbers, and I'm not going to actually turn there to read that to you tonight. But let me summarize just a little bit about the story of Balaam. When Israel left Egypt and they were on their way to the Promised Land, they were going to pass through the country of Moab. And there was a king there by the name of Balak who was in Moab, and uh, he'd heard about what Israel was doing. He heard about Israel coming up out of Egypt, and he knew that everybody who stood against Israel and tried to impede them on their way to the Promised Land, that God had always defeated them. Uh, They'd always come up on the short end of the stick. God had killed many people who stood against Israel. So Balak was afraid of Israel. He was afraid the very same thing would happen to his people. And so he found a prophet by the name of Balaam. Now, Balaam was a man who, uh, he was a prophet. I mean, he knew something about Israel's God. And Balak decided that he would hire Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the Israelite army. Now, Balaam was a very greedy man. And so on, on three different occasions, he tried to put a curse on God's people. But each time that he tried to do that, God wouldn't let him. But Balak was, or Balaam was so devious, and he so badly wanted to claim that reward of Balak that he was hired to put that curse on, he just tried to figure out another way that he could get around it and just go ahead and cause God's people to fall anyway and get his hands on Balak's money. Now, it's not as if God had not already warned. I mean, it's not like God uh, hadn't told him that these are my people, they're on their way to the promised land, and I'm going to get them there. Balaam was determined to get his hands on the money, and so he tried another way to get it. So what did he know? Well, as I said, he knew something about Israel's God, and he knew that God had put a prohibition on Israel about idol worship and about intermarriage. And so he just advised Balaam, or Balak rather, that what you need to do is you need to tempt Israel. Tempt them with your false gods and your fast women. And that's what he did. And sure enough, that plan worked. Israel got involved with Moab. Now, this is what happened to the church at Pergamos. They were Christians, but they're living in a society that worshipped every pagan god imaginable. And so they just started to bring some of those pagan practices right into the church. If I were to ask you tonight, who do we know that has brought idol worship into the church, what would your answer be? I think everybody knows. Nobody more than Roman Catholicism has done that. Roman Catholicism is really nothing but thinly veiled paganism. See, Roman Catholicism gained its advantage in the 4th century, and that's when Constantine decided that he would wed the church and the state together. He saw the advantage of ruling the people politically and religiously, and so he tried to put the two together. And in order to do that, what he, what he had to promise was that the pagans can have a little bit of their religion and the Christians can have a little bit of their religion, bring it all together, mix it all up, and everybody gets what they want, and Constantine is in power. So today, what you have is that mixture, and that's why, I mean, the history of it, that's why there are idols in the Roman Catholic Church. That's why they bow down before statues of Mary. That's why you could, you could go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and you'll find hundreds of statues. You'll find pilgrims by the millions who file through and rub the toe of a statue of Peter in order to receive a blessing. 
That's why there's all these holy sites around the world where Roman Catholics go to worship and they go there for miracles. That's why in many countries if they crawl on their hands and knees in order to do penance, they finger their rosary beads. That's why they climb into that little booth and they whisper in the, in a, in the, in the ear of a priest. All of that comes from this idolatry. It's why they invoke the names of angels and dead saints when they pray. It's all the doctrine of Balaam. They're still holding on to what Jesus is talking about here. It's the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Christ would not stand for that idolatry in Pergamos, and he's not going to stand for it today. And so he will not stand for the idolatry of the crucifix, nor will he stand for the blasphemy of the Roman mass. Now, you say, well, Pastor, you're just too hard. You shouldn't say things like that. Well, that's the history of it. Jesus is right here in the flesh today. He would say the same things I'm saying. I don't think he'd be as nice as I'm being about it. He didn't like it. It's idolatry. He says it's the doctrine of Balaam. Now, let's look, look a little bit further because in this doctrine, there's also the problem, or in the church, the problem of immorality. So, Balaam said to Balak, you need to offer your women for Israel's pleasure. And so... They did. I mean, they they began to intermarry, and soon their hearts were turned away from God. So Israel then began to intermarry with the Moabites. I mean, these are unconverted pagans, and so that immorality ended up in the idolatry. So Balaam was very slick about this. He knew how to get his money, and he was going to get it one way or the other. So what do we see in churches today in the area of immorality? Well, we see the same kinds of problems. There's really... In most churches, there's no church discipline any longer. You don't find that being taught today. Nobody talks today in churches about who's sleeping with whom. I mean, you can be a member of some churches, and they don't care what you're doing. Uh, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make a difference to them. You can be a member of their church, and you can carry on any way that you want. And then there's not only that type of sexual immorality, but also in most mainline Protestant denominations today, They have homosexuals that can be members of their church. And they'll actually ordain them in some places into the ministry. To even think that we'd be arguing over such things is mind-boggling. I mean, when you look at the scriptures. But that's the doctrine of Balaam. It starts out with compromise, and the place that it will end up is an abject heresy. And so what do you find in these denominations? No longer do they believe in the inerrancy of scripture, and no longer do they believe in the reality of a burning hell. Well, let's not just talk about immorality. I mean, uh, that's, in, that's in the corner of many churches today. Not, not just the people I'm talking about, but also preachers. Preachers get involved in this immorality. And they're, I, I, I could tell you about it. I mean, I know myself in many different cases where even pastors of independent Baptist churches have had their sexual liaisons with members of the church. And another problem is that in some uh, of these circles where these preachers travel, if your name is big enough, you can do it and get away with it and get into another church. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're big enough and, and high enough up there with all the other brethren, you can actually get into another church instead of being put out of the ministry. God demands purity from his people. He demands that we separate from immorality. And so that means that we have to act like, we have to look like, we have to talk like people who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that's what John says in chapter 1. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. Peter said, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. What about immorality in our church? 
You see, the doctrine of Balaam can even slip into Berean Baptist Church. And that's why people that are interested in in uh, finding out about all these future events and things that are going to happen in the book of Revelation, they get worn out right here in chapters 2 and 3 because it's just simply too convicting. And so they don't like to have their cho- uh, their toes stepped on, so they fall out right here. That's what I've been trying to tell you. These are convicting things that we find in chapters 2 and 3. Now let me go on because there's another type of compromise here, another type of worldliness, and that's the problem of infidelity. Now, here I'm not talking about sexual infidelity. I've I've covered that. Now I mean the loss of devotion to the one that we're supposed to serve. In verse 15 it says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We saw the doctrine of the Nicolaitans when we were discussing the church at Ephesus. Evidently, this was a widespread problem at that time. And when we studied that, I said, well, you know, there's nobody that absolutely knows for sure what this doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. Schofield suggests that it's a division between the laity and the clergy. And he means that there began to be a a separation between the people and there was a priestly order that arose in the church and the priests would have control over the people. Where do you find that today? I mean, think about that one. Where? Roman Catholicism. I mean, that, that just jumps right out you, at, at you there. I mean, the Roman priesthood has a system of, hi, of hierarchy. You have the pope, you have the cardinals, you have the archbishops, you have the bishops, and on down the line it goes. And what they say is, is that you cannot have a relationship with Jesus without us. You can't have forgiveness of your sins without us. You can't understand the Bible even without us. And so you have that ruling order. Jesus has one word for that, hate. You say, well, what do you mean? Jesus hates? I mean, I've never heard that before. I told you, you're going to find some revealing aspects of Jesus when you get in the book of Revelation. And this is one of the things that he says he hates. He hates some things. And what he hates is when there is a division between the people and, 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 and those that are ruling over them, and you have to go check with the priest to find out instead of checking with God. That's something that Jesus says he hates. Now, I could, I could stand back here and, and we could throw darts at Roman Catholics all night long. But I want to stop right there because this is a letter written to the Lord's churches. We have to notice that. Roman Catholicism is not the true church and they never were. The false practices prove that. So let's don't talk about that church and talk about ones with human founders. We can skip Warren and Osteen for right now because there's enough infidelity there to figure up, fill up hours of sermons if I want. Let's talk here about good old independent Baptists now because that's what we are. And in many independent Baptist churches, there are pastors who are actually popes. Is that possible? Well, yes, it is, because in some of these churches, the pastor stands between the people and God. And they they like to control everything, and they say, if you want to know what God's will is, we're making the decisions. You come and check with us, and we'll tell you about all those things. Whenever a pastor comes between you and God, I mean, even if he has that title pastor on his door, he's guilty of infidelity. And I mean that he's taken away the worship that belongs to God Almighty alone. We're to worship God and not men. Now, what you need to do, you need to honor your pastor. You need to respect him. Adver- uh, 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 go by his counsel. Seek his advice. Do that. But the pastor is not your intercessor. 
The pastor does not stand between you and God. Every believer is a priest. I mean, you as an individual believer, you are a priest, and you have the right to go to God yourself. You don't have to come to me. And if we're, if we're both godly people, if the pastor's godly and the person asking God is godly, we're going to get the same information anyway. So you don't have to go to me. You go directly to God and get what you need to know. And that's part of the worldliness of the church today. This is apart from the New Testament model. And so a pastor who practices things like that is guilty of infidelity. I don't care how many books he's written. I don't care what college that he runs. It doesn't matter. He doesn't deserve the praise and honor due to Christ alone. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's the doctrine of Balaam. And Christ says, I hate those kinds of things. Now, don't throw stones at me. And don't anybody get mad at me. I mean, uh, I, I just have to tell you what the Bible says. If you want a preacher that tells you something different, get rid of me or go to another church, one of the two. We've got to teach the truth. Now, let's finish up very quickly here. Number three is the wake-up for the church. Verse 16 says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So there's that sword again. That's that correcting and condemning sword. Either it's going to correct you or it will condemn you. And so Jesus says, Get it right, turn this thing around, or you will not be a part of my church. So Jesus wakes us up, and he opens our eyes, and he does it with two precious promises if we do what he says. He says to repent, get this right, get rid of the idolatry, the immorality, get rid of the infidelity, and then here's what you'll get. First of all, you'll get the assurance of provision. Verse 17 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Now remember, first of all, that every person who is a believer is an overcomer. We have a promise that God has begun that good work in us. He saved us, and God promises that he's going to complete that work. Now, notice here the promise. His eye will give to eat of the hidden manna. I love these kinds of references. I mean, I I just like this because I believe what Jesus is talking about here is that manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. Manna was Israel's provision of food in the wilderness. When they didn't have anything to eat, God came and God took care of them. He gave them the manna. And one of the things that that Moses, God told them to do, and and Moses uh, told Aaron to do this, he said, you take a pot of that manna, a golden pot of that manna, and you place it into the Ark of the Covenant. And so they preserved that golden pot of manna there, and that was to show that God would always provide for his people. Well, the amazing thing about that is, is that the Ark of the Covenant was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've described it before. It's a box that's made of wood overlaid with gold. The wood represents the humanity of Christ. The gold represents his deity. And so in one person, Jesus is God and he's man. And that's a picture of Jesus. So the ark then uh, had this golden pot of manna. And over that golden pot of manna, it's inside the ark. And there's a lid that covers all that up so you can't see it. And that lid is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is where the priest would come and he'd sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. And what that tells us is that there must be a sacrifice made. Jesus must come as a sacrifice for our sins. So the manna is there in the ark, and the only way that you can get to that provision is to go through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Those are beautiful pictures that the Bible gives us. It shows us that Jesus is our provision. 
And Jesus talked about it. He said, I'm the bread of life who's come down from heaven. Just like manna came down from heaven in the Old Testament, Jesus is the very bread of life come down from heaven. In John chapter 6, he said, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eateth its bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So there's that promise, the assurance of provision. But then we find another promise here, and that's the acceptance of intimacy. He says, I will give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Well, what is that white stone? Nobody really knows. This is one of those things that the Bible really doesn't explain to us and tell us exactly what it is. There are some people who say, well, it refers to the Urim and the Thummim. These were two special stones that were in the the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. Well, that's a great explanation, perhaps, except the Bible doesn't tell us what the Urim and Thummim were for either. So we're not getting very far with that. So maybe it refers to it. I don't know. Some people say that the white stone is a token of God's favor. Others say that this was a custom in the athletic games to give the winners a white stone. And still others say, well, no, the white stone is like a ticket for the athletes. At the end of the games, they have, a, they have a, an award ceremony, and you receive a white stone. That means that you can claim your reward. I don't know about that. Neither does anybody else know exactly what this is. But I do know it does have something with reward. He says that it's going to be given to those who overcome. There's a name that's written on this stone. It's a secret name. Nobody knows it but the one who receives it and Jesus who gives it. Now, what that tells us is that there's this special intimacy that exists between Jesus and the one who receives this. So Jesus has accepted us into his fellowship and his very, into his very intimacy. Now, when I think about these things that I preach tonight, I go over in my mind, uh, I go over all the warnings that are here, the harsh words that are written, the, what, what will happen to those who worship idols and permit uh, immorality. Uh, I see what God says that he'll do to those that are unfaithful. I think about the vengeance of Christ. All of that's present here. But then I have to come back right here to verse number 17. And not only do we see, do we see that side of Christ but we also see his tenderness. There's not one of us, even those of us who are saved, believers in Jesus Christ, there is not one of us that deserves anything other than maybe just to whitewash the outside of the walls of heaven, not even to get into the place. I mean, that would be a step up for us just to be able to clean the outside of heaven if that were possible. But Jesus does so much more. He welcomes us into his fellowship. Sweet, tender, fellowship what did jesus do he shed his blood for me the bible says he washed me with his blood it says he made me his child he loves me and then it says he desires fellowship with me you know there's a great description of christ where he's called our friend he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother jesus said in john fifteen thirteen, greater love hath no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends I'm thankful I'm a friend of Jesus. You know, that's why I never want to compromise his word. That, that's why I don't want to be unfaithful to him. It's why I want to teach you the truth. And I do it because he's never been unfaithful to me. So I never want to be unfaithful to him. 
I hope that you found that to be true in your life, that you have intimacy with Christ because you know that he loves you and he's accepted you into his fellowship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we can be together tonight and talk about your word. Some things that we have to say, Lord, are, may seem harsh and they're convicting, but, Lord, we have to tell the truth, just as you told the truth to these churches in that first century. And the reason, Lord, we know that you did that was to correct us, to draw us back, to bring us back into the way where we can be truly blessed. So, Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts tonight. Help us not to be a compromising church. May we always stand upon the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing. <clears throat>